So I have an intention that I'd like to try to reflect on a few themes tonight. We'll see how it goes. I'd like to reflect on not knowing, on curiosity, on self, this whole interesting theme called self, and on silence. So might be a large agenda, we'll see. So what's your relationship to knowing and not knowing? Do you like to know? You like to know what to do in a situation, for example? You like to know what's what, who's who? I heard, it just occurs to me, I remember hearing that apparently in one of these psychological tests where they see, you know, what's happening really quickly, that when, um, apparently, don't know if you do this, when encountering a little baby that you've never met before in the street, high street, or a small child, one of the first discernments that we want to know is, is it a boy or a girl? Right, that it just happens in a flash, apparently. You can see if this happens for you. And then, if we know that, then we can, we know what to do next, right? <laughs> Based on conditions of... Conditions. Of ideas, of conventions... And it may not be that that you need to know, but there may be other things. Often we have, I don't know, do you have any sense arising this week that you want to know what's going on? Right? What's, I want to know how to do this and nail it and sort it and, right? I want to fix it, want to know it. Often, (coughs) ordinarily, we like to know things to turn them into descriptions, if we think about it from the perspective of development, so a little child who doesn't know a whole lot, and you know, in that phase when they're still not knowing, before the concepts have got really thickened, you know, so they're just a little, just getting up to walk somewhere around one. They don't know a whole lot, but they're really curious, right? And they can go up to the taps in the sink. If you've got a stool, they can get up there. You can turn the tap on. And what happens if I put the plug in? There's no words yet, but... And the water fills up. And it spills over the edge. Turn the tap on some more. Water's everywhere. Wow. There's an adventure... There's a spirit that's quite natural in us that wants to explore, wants to play, wants to get a handle on what this whole thing is. It's very natural in the beginning. And that child at that age doesn't have a whole lot of concepts, it's just beginning. It's just beginning. And it takes a while, doesn't it? And you, have to, you need the pointing that goes with it. Door. Right? Out of all the vast possibilities, and this happens just to be English, you know, it's just the convention, really. Door, and they get it, and it's really exciting, and they know. But at that point, they're still not really darkened in terms of the lenses, or the opacity isn't there yet. They don't really believe it's a door. 
they know that's just a little description, a label that comes after the event because door is still something you can go. And it squeaks. Wow, you can stick your fingers there. It's like, so the adventure hasn't died. It hasn't got lost. Door is useful. Door is very useful to know because it helps navigate the world. It helps us. It helps us know which bit, when we look at this wall at the back here, if I was completely undifferentiated and I wanted to leave the meditation hall, wouldn't know which bit to go out of. Right? It's really useful. This knowledge is really useful. And of course, we can get very sophisticated with knowledge, and it's beautiful. It can be a beautiful, beautiful contribution to our world for navigating it, for investigating, for finding out for serving. But somewhere along the line, we mistake the concepts for the reality. And we lose the adventure. We lose the curiosity. And we think we know. And we stop looking at the door. Because we've got better things to do. We stop looking at the water coming out the tap. Because somehow there's something more important, we think. This um, I got from an airline magazine a long time ago. And it says at the top, this is from Pascal. The quote's from Pascal, the philosopher. It says, the sole cause of man's unhappiness, he's got a slightly different view than the Buddha, but the sole cause of man's unhappiness is that he can't stay quietly in his room. Right? And then the article goes on to talk about this um, <clears throat> young Frenchman, 27-year-old Frenchman from the 18th century, a long time ago, called Xavier de Maistre. And he undertook a journey around his bedroom Later, in, later entitling the account of what he had seen, Journey Around My Bedroom. Then he got so interested in this investigation, he went on to a further investigation. This time he traveled by night and ventured out as far as his window ledge. Later entitling his account, Nocturnal Expedition Around My Bedroom. <laughs> and it goes on and on about all that he discovered um, but he's saying, even though it's a kind of comical in a way, it springs from the profound and suggestive insight, it says, that the joy we derive from journeys, now the journeys like our holidays or our travels or where we go, is perhaps dependent more on the mindset with which we travel than on the destination we travel to. If only we could apply a traveling mindset to our own locales we might find these places becoming no less interesting than foreign lands. And it says, what is the traveling mindset? Receptivity might be said to be its chief characteristic. We carry with us no rigid ideas about what is interesting. And we irritate the locals, so when we're going on holiday, we irritate locals because we stand on traffic islands and in narrow streets and admire what they take to be strange small details. Right? Have you ever been traveling and you go, oh, wow. Right? Something in us wakes up again when we go traveling that we had with the tap a long time ago and the door. And we wake up and we love that spirit. We think it's the alleyways we love, and maybe we love the alleyways too. We can love both. We love the alleyways, but we really love what it wakes up in us that remembering of being able to stand in not knowing, not so familiar where we've stopped looking. You know when we get familiar, familiar with our family or our friends, we stop looking. We stop looking at them, marveling, wondering, who are you? You can try that if you like when you go home. They might, you know, look at you strangely. <laughs> but it's actually a beautiful practice. You don't have to tell them, 
right? But they say that familiarity breeds contempt. It isn't so much the years that do that, it's the lenses that come in. It's our thinking that I know. I know you, Mum. You're like this, and you're like this, and you're like this. And you're like this, and like that. And then I open my door to my mum, and I don't see her at all. I see my idea. And strangely enough, then, she seems to confirm my idea. Right? But what's actually happening? So what would it be to take that young French man's investigation into our own, into me, into what we call ourself? This adventure, which we completely usually overlook, we overlook, we overlook, because everything's more interesting out there. And that's what it's a little bit like as we start to develop as a child and we get the concepts and we start to get the framework of what things are called and how you can put them together and how you can count and do things. And the world becomes our adventure in this development, this phase of development. It's important. It's really important. We can get our Lego or whatever it is and we make things. And <coughs> But our gaze as we're developing, as the brain is developing and we're slowly gathering that sense of self, that's important. It's, a, it's actually quite a, an achievement to get one. When you're sitting here today, you probably think, I wish I didn't have such one. But it's actually an achievement to get some relatively functional, more or less, you got here, more or less functional self. And for that child as it's developing, yeah, the world is its adventure. And the gaze turns out. We need to learn how to interact and how people see us and how to respond. And, and the gaze very much turns out for most. And then we come to meditation and we see this self and we think it's the problem. It's not actually, but... Hopefully I'll get there. We see this sense of self. And we're asked to turn in and look in. And then this big dichotomy can arise. Oh my goodness, if I turn in, either there's nothing much there, because our gaze and our training has been turned out, or the fear, wow, if I start turning in, <coughs> am I going to leave the world? Am I going to leave the world behind? And either, depending on our relationship with it, we might say, oh, yeah, I'd be glad to leave the world behind. It's so much trouble. Or, no, I love the world. I love the world. I, I don't want my practice to lose contact with the relationships and the forms and the extraordinariness of what's here. All the time in that view, which we haven't looked at yet, is the sense that there is an inner and there is an outer. And that these are two different worlds. So let's put a question mark by that for the moment. Just have that sort of suspended there somewhere. So what would it be to be curious, to start to bring a curiosity and investigation to our very moments on the cushion? Where this fits in the tradition is um, very nicely, I think, in the formulations of the Buddha. He talked about seven factors of mind that culminate in awakening. Seven factors of awakening. They both are qualities that can be cultivated that support us to wake up to what's true. And they're also qualities of the awakened mind itself. The mind that isn't hindered, that is freed up. And one of them is called Dharma Vichaya, which is the quality of investigation, investigation of states, investigation of dhammas, investigation of things, investigation of the way things are. 
And we've been beginning to look at what this means, investigation. So practice, yes, it's mindfulness. One of the factors of awakening is mindfulness. This capacity to pay attention directly with moment-to-moment experience, a bare attention, foot-touching earth, sound, Bare data. This is, this is one of the aspects of mindfulness. Dharmavichaya, investigation, is when we start to turn that quality of attention toward experience and start to get interested. Not just an intellectual curiosity, because then we kind of get lost easily in the story, but just that interest of what is this? What is this experience of being alive? What is this What is this breath? What happens if I pay attention like this? Ah, what happens if I open the attention and pay attention like this? Oh, this happens. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, and then there's this whole sense of self arise, of all this heat arises and all this struggle. Wow, look at that. Why I'm going all tense and hot. Wow. Gosh, what's going on here? Wow, I feel like I'm nine again and I'm just about to kick someone. Wow. Whatever it is that's arising there. And we can watch that whole thing take shape very intimate with it. Just like the tap. Just like the door. Just like the holiday. Looking in the alleyways and in the little shops. Wow. Let's look at this. So I might say, I would say, that the journey of awakening, in a way, can pick up where we've left off with this particular quality. Somewhere, most of us lost a bit of contact with our curiosity, or it gets limited to very specific spheres in life. Somewhere, I don't know, when was it for you that that kind of, the play, the ability to play with experience. Be curious about someone. You know how little kids, they walk down the high street and they see someone and they go, wow, wow, you're tall. Or, wow, just looking, wow. Right? And then somewhere along the line, someone says, especially in England, Don't look. It's personal. Don't say they're tall. Right? Don't be personal. It doesn't happen in every culture, actually. Some cultures you're still allowed to look when you're an adult. Wow. You can kind of keep looking. And looking is just one aspect. It doesn't mean that their Dharma Vichaya is completely intact. Right? But aren't you ever curious to have a good look at who's here? You get to see their slippers. Wow. Not that interesting, really. It could be. But who's behind you? Who's around you? And we can be a little shy around our curiosity. We're told somewhere, don't be too curious. It's different from fascination. Fascination is when it does become very cerebral and only, uh, and we get a little fixated. That's different has a different quality to it. And we can discern the difference between fascination where we kind of completely fixate <coughs> and a curiosity that has a lightness, has a light touch to it. Has a joy in it, actually. It's a real joy. It doesn't have to be a, um exuberant joy. It can be a very quiet, What's this? Has actually a quality of heart to it, curiosity. So picking up where we left off with this quality 
as if we did. Not all of us. We've lost touch to different degrees. This time, though, we're not trying to be the child. We have a maturity now. We haven't only got the external gaze, right? There's a whole process of development that's happened for all of us that is a huge achievement of getting the concepts that the brain development's a massive, massive, wonderful achievement. <clears throat> of being able to self-reflect even. You know, at a certain point, there's enough capacity, we can turn around and go, oh yeah, this is what I'm like, I'm like this, and I'm not like that. And then somewhere around, you know, whatever age it was for you, teens or somewhere, we more or less get this sense of self together. At least everyone else seems to have one, so I ought to, and kind of find out who I am. And am I going to be a... I know, it's still rather fluid as a teenager. Am I going to be a goth or a hippie? You know, we get some other sort of identity going. Or whatever else. Or I'm not going to be any of those. I'm going to be someone with no identity. That's who I am. I'll have the identity of no identity. And then the journey of awakening is actually about going beyond even the self-reflective capacity. The self-reflection is extraordinary. It's an evolutionary marvel that we can turn around and look at ourselves and say, yeah. Awakening, we could say, is the next adventure. The next adventure. And very natural for us to want to discover more, to want to know who and what we are beyond this limited sense of self because however good a self we've got together however functional, however approved or not approved of it is, something in us also knows, has the sense of the potentiality that there is something more than just this limited sense of self, no matter how good a self you've got, how successful it is. And the beautiful thing in Dharma teaching is that we're not trying to get a more successful self. Does that sound like good news or not? (laughs) We just don't want a successful one. We're not trying to get a more successful self. Maybe I'll leave that. So this not knowing, (coughs) when we're one year old, it's one thing. When we're 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, however old we all are in here, we think we're supposed to know. We're supposed to know. Don't you think you're supposed to? I'm supposed to know who I am by now. I'm supposed to know how to behave properly. I'm supposed to know. And what is it like in these moments, probably all of you have touched this week, where actually you don't know either what to do, how to do it, what's going on. (coughs) How are you with that? How are you with not knowing? Does it feel like an adventure? Or does it feel scary? We're not used to it anymore. We're so used to knowing through our concepts that now the not knowing can make us feel a little shaky, can make us feel a little nervous, and quickly wanting to scramble to find the thing that I know and can be sure of again. Right, who am I? And with the sense of self here, it doesn't get reflected back so much to you here. Whatever sense of selves you've gotten together in your life, they're not getting so reflected back here, at least externally. So what that might mean is you might be wandering around here one day thinking, somebody, can somebody see me? Can somebody notice me? Can somebody say hi? 
and you look on the notice board and everybody else seems to be getting notes with their names on, apart from you. Right? Why is there a note for Sarah and Mary? And Where's my note? There's nothing up there for me. Oh, okay. Maybe I'll look at the schedule. Maybe there'll be something there for me. No, it's still the same. Okay. Wander around looking for something. What are we looking for? Usually we're looking for something to reflect us. Something to confirm or deny. If you hang around long enough on retreat, you can see this search for who we are. It's, it's, it's very natural, actually. But again, we're looking it, for it usually in the definitions of, of what we've known already from the past. One time I was on, on a re- longer retreat here and wandering around in one of those vacant moments. Have you ever had any of those vacant moments? You know, Nothing to read. You've read the fire regulations. You've read the schedule. You've read... You've read, what else can you read here? (laughs) The notices on the doors about taking your shoes off? Not much. Maybe the manager's notice board down by reception. That's interesting. You can look at their pictures for a bit. There's something to do. One time I was wandering around. And we don't know it at first. We think, you know, we're used to having, we're used to being purposeful and aim. You know, we know what we're doing. We're... 30, 40, 50, 60, of course I know what I'm doing. We're kind of wandering around, not knowing what we're doing. And I found myself uh, hanging around the washing up area out there. Um, And at the time, I didn't know what I was doing there. Often we don't quite know what we're looking for half the time. And I was hanging around this bucket, um, which I think they still have, that says wet tea towels and... uh, does it still? It says that, does it? Yeah, thirty tea towels. And I had been done a temporary relief coordinator job for a month when somebody wasn't there, and I had been a few years before had written on the bucket dirty tea towels, and it was such a comfort. I hung around with that bucket because at least, <laughs> at least, ah, oh, phew. There's some reference. There I am. In the absence of anyone else loving me, caring about me, saying how you're doing, telling me I'm good, telling me I'm bad, at least. And then at some point we see it, what we're doing. Oh, well, that's a bit odd. It's a little odd behavior. Staring at a bucket, feeling comfort. But you hang around. Any of you have been on longer retreat? Maybe you've even seen something like that this week. The empty spaces can feel very threatening to us. And what we're used to having come in those empty spaces is some sort of self-definition. And if it's not coming from the outside, I have to generate it on the inside. So we keep telling ourselves the story about ourselves. At least that will do it. No one to tell me. No buckets. Nothing here. Right. Who am I? Oh, yeah, I'm a lousy meditator. I'm a lousy meditator. You see? I'm a lousy... And we keep spinning the story, picking it up, picking it up. Oh, okay, that's who I am. It's very odd. Even the difficult, painful self-definitions we are peculiarly loyal to. Peculiarly loyal to. They give us some sense of comfort, actually. If you examine it, if you see it as it arises... Often relationships, and I don't just mean intimate relationships, often relationships can be about reflecting to each other these familiar senses of self. Right? So let's say, and this sense of, this sense of self, this, and I'm using it in the sense of the limited sense, the historical sense, the sense of separateness, the sense of I'm like this and I'm not like that. This I know who I am for sure sense, which is largely constructed from our history. I mean, we know this psychologically also. Psychological understanding says as much. Constructed from our history usually to do with how we've been seen or not seen. 
And that's always limited. Whoever, however marvelous our family was or not, we're never fully seen. The, de- the depth and fullness of what we are. Right? And so therefore it's conditioned. It's conditioned by how we're seen or what slot there is left available for us in our tribe. Right? You know, there's the naughty kid or the good one or the whatever. If you've looked, you'll see that. It's a, it's a very normal way of seeing it. Or we're in reaction to that, right? We had to be the good one until we were 16, and I'm not going to be the good one anymore. Right, I'm going to be the bad one. Okay, so now I'm the bad one. Now I'm the bad one. Again, it can be reaction, a reaction to the history, whatever it was, whether we've been the good one, the bad one, the sweet one, the funny one, <clears throat> the angry one, quiet one, serious one. Well, we've got a few of those. When we come to sit, they arise for sure. And so do some other things that weren't necessarily on the map before. Sometimes there's moments of silence, and it might be what we've been wanting all week. And there's a moment of stillness and silence, and then, whoop! We're afraid, become a fearful one. In the silence, the definition doesn't reflect us in the same way. And there may be some fear that arises with that. And there's a process of deepening in the trust of not knowing, of not knowing and not having to pick up every self-definition that arises. Sometimes we pick them up and we spin with them and we we examine that, we look at it, that's our Dharma practice too. One of my favorite stories, I was relatively new to practice and um, um, I had become what they call the coordinators now at the old guy house over there, used to call it managers then, one of the coordinators. And I had done some retreats but still quite new and uh, sat in a little bit on one of the retreats that was happening. And it was in a very small meditation hall. It was just the living room of the old house that it used to be, so it's a living room size. And there were 35 people in there, kind of my nose a foot, I would say, away from the guys back in front of me. You're not that much more, are you? You've got about a foot and a half. <laughs> anyway, it's pretty close. And the man in front of me, I was newish to practice and sitting, got bored after 30 minutes, opened my eyes. Um, and I thought, that's who I am. That was my definition. I'm just a 30-minute girl. Right? That was a kind of new meditation definition. Yeah, that'll do. That's good. That's who I am. Right? I'll just hang out for the next 15 minutes. And when I opened my eyes, sometimes the man in front, who I knew was a very experienced meditator so I had deep respect I knew he'd been around the circuit a long time and I was a bit curious actually to be honest but I could only see his jumper so it wasn't that interesting but when I opened my eyes I would see his shoulders going up and down like this (laughs) and some of you have heard me tell this a million times and I was really curious like wow when are they going to teach me that part you know (laughs) like yeah obviously I'm not big enough old enough wise enough for, to learn that technique. But anyway, in the, in the small group meeting near the end of the retreat, he was uh, reporting, to, and I went, got to go as well, and he was really shaken. He was really shaken and uh, looked a little afraid. And he said, uh, I don't know what's going on. He said, I really don't know what's going on. He said, I'm really, really dedicated and serious about this meditation. You know, I, I, it's really important to me. He said, but in the sitting, I just can't stop laughing. He goes, I can't stop laughing. And he was, ter- he was really scared. And we might think, how lovely for him. Doesn't always feel like that, does it, when something that's not in our box shows up. Wasn't in his, 
but it wasn't on his brief. Right? And when it's laughter, we might sit here and think, oh, that's beautiful. Lovely, lucky guy, how wonderful. Kind of opens things up for him. But anything when it opens up, we're ambivalent about it, usually. And it, we might see it the other way around. Let's say, actually, I'm a really, I'm the fun girl about town. And I come to meditation, and wow, I get really, really serious, or I get really down, and that doesn't fit my definition. Right? From the perspective of practice, we're not trying to get the best self. We're not trying to get the best experience from the perspective of awareness and the perspective of the depth of what we are. It doesn't matter what our experience is. It really doesn't. We can learn to work with it more or less skillfully and help some of the um, pain to heal and be liberated, for sure. But from the perspective of awakening, it's okay. Whether what arises is the sadness, the fear, the joy, the love, the anger. It's when we spin it and take it to be me, take this as I am, this I am at the center of experience, is actually what keeps the whole thing spinning. And this is what the Buddha was really excellent at pointing to. This sense of I am in right in the middle of that spin. Because actually, if you examine the mind states, which is one of the places that we take this sense of self very strongly, say sadness. Actually, sadness arises when the conditions are there for it. The sense of the I am, taking it as, as a, de- a definition of who and what I am, This bit's actually extra. This bit is actually imputed, it's added, it's um, it's not inherent, actually, in our experience. So most spiritual traditions actually have something to say about self. It's not just the Buddhists. Most have something to say about self. Because on some level I think we all intuit that believing everything that arises in my sense of who I am and then I meet the world and there's this sort of clunky fit. Sometimes I fit with some people or kind of clunk into other ones. or And we sense intuitively that something about this sense of self is either a little awkward or... Um, Tiring or clunky or something. But I think the understanding of selflessness is often very, very deeply misunderstood. Very deeply misunderstood such that we think we have to go from self to being selfless. That that's what, you know, at least some spiritual ideals would say. And that means I completely overlook what's here. And I, you know, it depends what the ideal is. It might be serve. It might be um, never say another word again. It might be whatever the ideal happens to be in that tradition. And that points to rather, it's not properly examined yet. The outer gaze that I was talking about earlier where then the fixation becomes on everything that's outside. I have to, let's say the ideal is service, I have to serve, 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 and then I burn out, burn out, burn out, burn out, burn out, burn out, because I haven't really yet examined what this sense of self is. So the Buddha, Buddha, sometimes, probably some of you have heard the teaching of no self, which is quite central to the teaching of the Buddha. But the Buddha didn't actually call it no self. No self, we could see as the opposite extreme of self. Self, believing absolutely in this separate sense, is one extreme. Believing it that it's um, inherent, believing that it has its own core, believing that it's separate, believing that it's, it's like the experience of, I'm here, there's two things in the world. 
there's the world and there's kind of me looking out onto it. Right? They're the two things. That separate sense of self gives it a solidity and that would be a perspective of one extreme that would be um, uh, like saying that it's eternal. Self is has an inherent existence, it's eternal. The other extreme would be to say no self. So there's nothing here. Um, there's no... There's no self, there's no me that's here. If we take that as a view, if we fix that as a view, this becomes a nihilist perspective, a nihilist expect, a perspective of this one is asserting reality and this one is kicking it away. There's nothing here. The better language um, for this, what the Buddha was teaching, is not-self. Not no self, but not self. Not self, and he said, examine it. Don't start believing it as a philosophical uh, speculation. Examine it. Examine what this, what this is, this experience of self. And not self means that actually the experience of self, of who and what I am, arises due to conditions moment by moment by moment and it keeps changing moment by moment by moment. It's not fixed. It's not eternal. It's not something that you can put in a box, tie up with string and say, this is who I am. I'm the good one. I'm the bad one. I'm the funny one. I'm the angry one. We can't tie it up in string like that to do that, which is what we've done takes a huge amount of effort. You know, the effort that you feel in meditation, tiringness that we feel in meditation, often, it's not the meditation actually, it's the incessant monologue that it takes to keep these senses of self intact, to keep these little boxes tied up with string, to keep that sense of, yep, I know, I know. As soon as we stop feeding that incessant monologue, very naturally the string of the boxes starts to loosen. It can't hold up in the silence. <coughs> in the silence, as you sit and just listen in the meditation hall, to the depth and the stillness that's here, the monologue relaxes. The monologue, the story about who I am relaxes. In that relaxation, it's as if the string and comes off, the boxes start to open. But it's all unknown. It's not known to us. It doesn't fit neatly into the preordained history anymore. There will be the historical formations that may arise in the present, right? But when we meet them from the silence, there's that which is listening, that which is hearing, that which is holding this, that the box can start to open. Take some trust, actually. And then we might get a little afraid, and then the monologue gets going again. Sometimes <clears throat> the sense of self can be very highlighted in meditation and, and actually that's the point, we're studying this. It's one of the things we study. But a duality can arise for meditators very often which maybe some, goes something along the lines of um, right, I'm going to go meditate, 
I'm going to go go and get still, especially if we've had some experience. If you're a beginner, you probably have a much more open mind on some level. I'm going to go get still or blissful or whatever it is you've had that you've liked. And then I can get out of this whole painful, ugly scenario called self. I'll get the stillness, I'll get the bliss, I'll get the whatever it is, and then I don't have to go there to this painful, um, limited sense of whom what I am. And you might try that for a bit. But then we have to sort of squeeze ourselves away, push ourselves away. And it's brutal, actually. It's brutal. Practice isn't about annihilating ourself. As we rest back into the silence and start to trust it a little bit more, that it's okay. I think somebody said, um, was it today or yesterday, something about, oh, they were, they were exploring their experience and said, no, no, I mustn't, I mustn't relax and just breathe out and open to the silence and the calm that's here. Because if I do, I'm going to explode. Right, that was the belief. She relaxed a little bit, arms dropped away from her, from holding herself tightly. Breath came out. She goes, oh, I didn't explode. Right? There was a surprise. She was ready to be surprised. Just like the little one with the tap is ready to be surprised. We don't think we know already. Then something new can happen for us. It's our not knowing, sorry, it's our knowing, the knowing that has the thick lenses on it that keeps us in the sense of two-dimensional, where the world becomes like, I already know it. I already know what's here. The world becomes two-dimensional. I've stopped playing long ago. It's not an adventure. The best I can do is just put up with it for the next 30 years, however long I've got left. All right. We've lost the capacity to be surprised. We've lost the capacity, somewhat, to feel awe. And I know you, ha- you all haven't lost all those capacities. In practice, we also rediscover the willingness to be surprised, the willingness to stand in the blue summer sky and the green leaves out there and go, Wow. And really let it in. It's actually pretty awe-inspiring that you have six days in England in June. Where it's sunny. <laughs> well, that's a surprise. I've never taught a retreat at Gaia House. I've taught retreat in June every year for years. Never like this one. Are you willing to let yourself be surprised? And it takes a little risk to do that, doesn't it? It's a risk to come here and sit with our mind. I mean, if we think we know what we're doing, we can give ourselves the illusion that I know what's going on for a while. But you can't hold it up. It's exhausting, isn't it? Just to keep telling yourself, you know what? (laughs) It's exhausting. (sighs) Give yourself a break. How would it be to not have to know? Still, the curiosity to know but not to fix it all, not to tie it all down. And I got this nailed. I know how seven days retreats work now. How can you possibly wrap your mind around this? This. This experience of life. It's kind of funny that we even try to wrap our mind around it to know it. Yes, we have concepts. Yes, we know, we've got words called gravity. What's that? What's that that holds you to the earth? Did you and I talk about that last night? I got this one of his favorite things. It's like, what's that that holds you down on here and doesn't have you floating off into space? Oh, it's gravity and there's probably a formula. And But isn't that amazing? You know, there's something called gravity. Otherwise, we'd be all hanging around. We wouldn't be able to do a retreat because (laughs) it would be pretty hard to keep us down here.
It doesn't get dark enough till really late here, but maybe you can do it when it's not dark. Lay down on the earth out there. What time does it get dark here? Anyone stay up that late yet? No. <laughs> Twelve? I don't know what time it gets dark at the moment. Huh? 10.30. Okay, not so late, actually. Okay. And there's not much moon at the moment. I notice it's just a little slither. So it might be dark. We'll see what happens later. But you can lay on the earth there and look up. And we call it looking up. Who says it's up? <laughs> who says it's up? I mean, even all these words about space and time, who says it's up? And as Yanai is fond of saying, from his perspective, he's from New Zealand, we're down. We're, we're on the other side. I mean, he's looking up. We're looking, we're looking out. It's all, it's all a con- there's a lot of conventions around it. If you sit, lay back on there, look up at that sky at night. But what happens when we do that, when we just see, when we just let the contact come towards us, very often that sense of self reasserts itself. Right, that's very lovely, but what about Coco? Oh, you know, that's very nice, very awesome, thank you very much. Let's go to bed. Can we tolerate? How well are we able to tolerate not conceiving, not possibly being able to wrap our mind around? How, how much can you tolerate the inconceivable, that which you can't conceive, that which you can't wrap a thought around, that which you don't know? How able are you to tolerate that? Maybe just for a breath. Or just a glance at the tree trunk. You know, there are some really... People have been remarking some awesome trees out there. Something bigger and older, like some of those trees, can break through our sense of familiarity. Oh, wow, look at that tree. cartoon of Calvin and Hobbes you know the little six year old boy with the tiger teddy bear who he has fantasy games with and it's a real tiger sometimes and he's about seven I think the little boy and his mum he's sitting in watching telly first frame and his mum shouts from the kitchen go outside and play and he just kind of Hunkers down. Next frame, she's shouting louder, go outside and play, and he's going, no. Next frame, same. Next flame, frame, she's got him by the scruff of the neck. Back door's open. She's pushing him outside. Go outside and play. And he's going, no. And she says, why not? And he looks out, and he's out there in the back garden. He's going, it's too real. <laughs> it's too real. It's very real to not come with our knowing. It's very open. We want the protection of our knowing sometimes, to know how to do it. How do I do it? We have conventions, cultures, all all of us. We have conventions and they're fine. They're not the problem, but we think they're the reality. You know, we have conventions of how to greet each other so that we know what to do. You know, we shake hands. That's what you do. You meet this other being and, you know, God knows how they got to be them, but you shake hands. And, right? Or you, different cultures, you might bow. There's a, I, I read this book I recommend. It's very funny, but also very poignant, called um, Watching the English. Have you read that? It's an anthropo- sort of quite popular anthropology book by an anthropologist who happens to be English, but she's visiting her own culture from the, with the eyes of an anthropologist. And there's a thing about greeting behavior, talking about different cultures. And, you know, in North America or some parts of North America, you might, you might shake hands and you say your name. Say, hi, I'm Bob. I'm from Michigan or whatever. And that's how you do it there. And, you know. and what an anthropologist looks for is the rule the rule that kind of unifies the behavior. 
And most cultures have a rule of how you greet each other. It's quite formalized, which can be beautiful. But often what we can do is mistake the convention for the real meeting, if we're not careful. She said the only rule she could find in England for greeting behavior was what she called the awkwardness rule, <laughs> where, where to be quintessentially English, you have to greet awkwardly. You have to kind of not quite know what you're doing. It's like, do you shake hands? Do you hug? Do you kiss? Do you... Right? And hopefully we can see that with a light heart. It's like, oh, okay. Which actually, in a way, points to the fact that it's a little more unknown. You know, often we're awkward because we don't know what to do. We'd like to know, how do you do it here? Which we don't know. How is it not to know? How, how, how should we meet? Are you a kisser? Are you a hugger? You... Can we tolerate the not knowing? It's not just about the night sky. It's about our encounter with ourself, with each other. It's all rather mysterious, actually. And in that, if we just trust a little bit more, which we practice over time, we, we know we can start to relax a little bit the monologue. Slowly, slowly over time, we get glimpses of the, a little more stillness, more contentment. We're drawn to that. There's something intuitively that we're drawn to. We love it. We trust a little bit more. The boxes open up. Oop. We can tolerate a bit more of our own material, our own pain, our own joy, our own pleasure, our own neutralness and the stillness and the depth of the silence. We can tolerate more and more trust that actually the process has an intelligence to it. I don't have to fix and control through my knowledge. I can have the knowledge. Knowledge can be beautiful. But I don't have to mistake the concept for the reality. And this is where the adventure starts again. It might be a very quiet adventure into the silence into the stillness. I'm going to stop there with uh, two pieces, one from the Buddha, one from Rumi. Um, didn't say so much about the silence. Maybe we'll get there later. So from the Buddha first. So in the discipline of practice, it is the silence of solitude that is wisdom. When the solitude becomes a source of delight, then it shines in all the ten directions. Listen to the sound of water. Listen to the water running through the chasms and rocks. It is the minor streams that make a great noise. The great waters flow silently. This is the sound of wisdom. It is the minor streams that make a great noise. The great waters flow silently. And I'll finish with this one from Rumi, the poet. It's called Quietness. He says, Inside this new love, die. Your way begins on the other side. Become the sky. Take an axe to the prison wall. Escape. Walk out like someone suddenly born into color. Do it now. You're covered with thick cloud. Slide out the side, die, and be quiet. Quietness is the sure sign that you've died. Your old life was a frantic running from silence. The speechless full moon comes out now. Your old life was a frantic running from silence. The speechless full moon comes out now. So let's sit for a minute together to finish.
So when he uses the word die, he doesn't mean a physical death. He means dying to the old, that the old skins can shed, the old skins can drop off. The dying to the old. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.